0: Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Over the past decade, Dallas Independent School District overhauled its system for evaluating and compensating teachers and started a new program to attract teachers to -to hard-to-staff schools. The effects of these changes on student outcomes in one of the nation's largest school districts are attention-grabbing, and they're documented in two new papers the first, the Effects of Comprehensive Educator Evaluation and Pay Reform on Achievement, looks at Dallas's Principal Excellence and Teacher Excellence initiatives. And the second, Attracting and Retaining Highly Effective Educators in Hard-to-Staff Schools, looks at Dallas ISD's Accelerating Campus Excellence Program. There's a lot of authors on the papers, and they include Eric Hanushek, Jen Liu, Andrew Morgan, Men Wynn, Ben Ost, Steve Rivkin, and Iman Shaquille. To discuss the programs today, we only have two of those authors, but they're great ones, Eric Hanushek and Steve Rivkin. Eric Hanushek is the Paul and Jean Hanna Senior Fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and the winner of the 2021 Yidan Prize for Education Research. Steve Rivkin is the Department Head and the Professor of Economics at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Rick, Steve, welcome to the Report Card.
1: It's always great to be with you, Nat.
0: Thanks for having us. You bet. All right. So we got two papers we want to cover. over. You guys have had a busy March. Both of these are NBER papers and they concern some reforms that happened at Dallas ISD, the large district in Texas. And we're going to get to them shortly, but a little bit of background will help set the stage. Steve, First to you, can you give listeners just a quick thumbnail on how educator evaluation systems operate and how they've sort of been changing a little bit over the past couple of decades?
2: You know, my understanding is historically principals or assistant principals would evaluate teachers in a way that wasn't really connected with how well the students did. And the evaluations tended to be overwhelmingly positive. And I think since reforms began maybe in the 1990s and with no child left behind, the evaluations have tended to take on a more rigorous structure in many states related to achievement or achievement growth for teachers teaching subjects in which their students are tested. More rubrics around evaluations based on observations And so I think it's become, you know, a much more rigorous and comprehensive process. But that's not the case
0: in all districts and in all places. Right. Lots of change and still questions out on the products of it. We'll get to that in a minute. Rick, can you give us a similar sort of thumbnail? How do teacher compensation systems typically work? I mean, just what's the basic function?
1: Well, this is pretty simple to answer that question. Uh, You record how many years of experience you have as a teacher and whether you have an advanced degree and you look it up in a table of what your salary is. So that compensation systems have evolved to very standard payments for experience and degrees, but not much for anything else.
0: And those evaluation systems that we mentioned have had a good bit of action around them. There's still open questions as to how effective those changes have been. But the teacher compensation reform, Rick, correct me if I'm wrong, has seen less fundamental changes in that time period. Is that fair to say?
1: Absolutely. The compensation system, you have very few districts that deviate very much from that. There might be little bits of money, even beyond being a coach on a basketball team but little bits of money around the edge. But the main weight of compensation follows those things.
0: All right. So in Dallas, not actually that long ago, around 2013-14, they took some pretty serious steps, both on their comprehensive evaluation systems for educators and on pay reform. And there's two papers. And the first one is the effects of the comprehensive system. So let's hit on that. Rick, What spurred Dallas ISD to undertake these reforms, and what were the main things that they changed?
1: Well, what spurred it was that they hired a new superintendent, Mike Miles, who had some experience with experimenting with different pay systems when he was a superintendent in Colorado. And when he moved to Dallas, he spent a lot of time working with the district and the teachers and the school board and others to try to develop a new, more comprehensive pay system that was linked to performance of the personnel, how well the principals and how well the teachers did in terms of their student performance. And so that took actually two or three years to refine a system and get one that the school board would agree to and they dramatically changed and left a world of experience and advanced degrees and went to a world that was much more closely linked to performance and the evaluation of performance.
0: And Steve, you had mentioned there's race to the top, which folks will just have to look up the history on that if they need that background. But there was a lot of incentives to change evaluation systems and so forth. But it seems to me that in Dallas, what you have is these changes both to the evaluation system and to the pay systems at the same time in ways where the two were more closely linked, where as many of the evaluation reforms that have happened all over have really been sort of one-sided, let's change the evaluation, and not as closely linked to pay changes. Is that about right?
2: I think that's right. I think it's worthwhile to, I guess, to take a step back and think a little bit about what Mike Miles had in mind, because you know, he wanted to develop a large system that would provide a lot of information for educators to improve. And also to use that information to make personnel decisions. And he was worried a lot about consequences such as teaching to the test and teaching in ways that didn't engender longer-term learning. And so you have this system where one component of the evaluation is based upon how well the students do on, on standardized tests, which the district developed many of them. You have another component, which is based on supervisor observations, and you have a third component, which is based upon feedback from students, for teachers and families, for principals, and this includes kids as young as third grade. And so I think what's kind of remarkable is not only do we observe, you know, the effects on achievement, but we can look at and see whether he was successful in developing a system that did more than just improve this year's test scores. You know, that didn't really engender that kind of deeper learning. And then he attached the evaluation score, which is the amalgam of the three different components, and made teacher salaries primarily determined by your evaluation score, by placing scores into... Eight or nine categories like buckets, and what bucket you're in determines your pay, except for new teachers, you know, and some other special circumstances.
0: Okay. One of the aspects of the changes in Dallas was it just wasn't teacher reform. In fact, the first step on this journey was the Principal Excellence Initiative they undertook in 2013. Rick, what was the first step they undertook with principals?
1: Well, one of the things that Mike Miles has emphasized is the importance of leadership. And so he went out to find ways to evaluate principals and to find out who was doing a good job in terms of the performance of the school. Now, this is a little bit broader than just student performance, but looking at the whole operation of the schools. And in fact, there are some safeguards that are built in to try to make sure that there isn't rampant grade inflation as there had been in the previous systems. But he set out to um, have an evaluation design that covered principal jobs.
0: And then the PEI, the Principal Excellence Initiative, was followed shortly thereafter, a couple of years later, by the Teacher Excellence Initiative. That had multiple components to us. Rick, can you just break down again, how did that work and how did the TEI translate into differential pay?
1: Well, the TEI was designed around a multiple rating system. One of it was individual observations of supervisors who had a scoring rubric that they used and had regular Uh, observations of teachers, including some unannounced observations, Uh, that was married with a system of value added to test scores that if there were sufficient test information, you attached uh, information about the learning gains of kids in each class. And then you had a survey of students who gave their own rating of the teachers, and these were all put together, and based upon your uh, aggregate score across those three areas, they weren't weighted the same, by the way, the surveys were much less than the others, based upon your aggregate score, you were put into a bin from needs improving to uh, excellent, and those bins determined salaries, And an important element to his design was that there were fixed proportions of the teachers in each bin so that you didn't keep getting automatic grade inflation and pay inflation. And so that he could hopefully have the budget under control.
0: So it couldn't be sort of Lake Wobegon where all our teachers are above average.
1: Uh, It could not be. And, And as you know, the Prior TNTP study on the widget effect it suggests that if you looked at the normal district, you would find that 95% of the teachers are good to excellent, uh, which doesn't quite match most parents' uh, views of what's going on.
0: Steve, how comprehensive was this coverage? I mean, sometimes you'll hear about these evaluation systems those sort are of only apply to math and reading teachers, or they'll only apply to elementary schools. Was this full bore, or was it constricted to a subsample of the teachers? Everybody
2: is participating in this system, and I think that they did two things to expand, not only expand coverage, but improve um, coverage. One was the district developed many assessments so that it wasn't just teachers who taught material covered on state standardized tests. And so there were assessments in many other subject areas, and I think in earlier grades than third grade when the state test started. And the second one is that you had achievement, what they call performance, which is based upon observations of the supervisor, and then feedback from students. Depending upon the age of the kids the subjects taught, there were different weights placed to determine the aggregate evaluation score on these different categories. He also, Mike Miles, recognized the importance of the school as a team, you know, as a unit. So part of the achievement score was a score, the score of the average achievement in the whole school. And for principals, a part of the achievement score was success at reducing achievement gaps. But I think the one thing that, that I think is important is that there's a lot of worry and concern raised about arbitrary treatment of teachers. I think that's true in any organization that you're in. And I think by evaluating the principles and including them and giving them skin in the game, there's a real penalty for engaging in arbitrary behavior, for favoring a cousin to get the teaching position or or evaluating them better someone you're friendly with or to the point where you discriminate against someone on the basis of of race that you pay a penalty if you do that you know in terms of your own evaluations because that's anything which compromises the quality of the school is going to show up as hurting you and at least that's the design of the system so i think that level of evaluation of the principal is a crucial component to having a successful system of evaluating the teachers.
1: So there's one other thing that I'd throw in also. When you take the evaluation system to pay, it was not like other districts have done this. Other districts like Washington, D.C., have taken the evaluations and determined a bonus that adds on to the salaries that's determined by experience and degree level. This was not a bonus system. This was the pay system. And so the use of experience and degree level just went away. And it was all based upon this overall evaluation. And so first, it was very much different than anybody else. And emphasized scores and performance were what counted. But secondly, what we're going to see in the future is that it's much harder to eliminate it. In other systems, when you've had bonus systems, there's constant pushback on whether the bonuses are right or maybe there's financial exigencies and there's a tendency to eliminate the bonuses in the future and go back to the old system. There is no old system here.
0: Yeah, and that is a major point of demarcation. And I think you've laid out several. So, first of all, this is really a, a new compensation system. It's not leveling something on top of what was previously there. So, it's not a band aid. Um, it's full bore. So, it doesn't seem as though it's to some small pocket of teachers, but it includes principals as well in sort of an interlocked system. And then the last thing is, this seems to escape a lot of the criticisms where people will be upset about high stakes testing. Because it's not, it is reliant on value added, which is related to state tests, but some of the assessments aren't even state tests, and there's a lot more that goes into the evaluation framework than just these things. So there's a lot to like here from the way you're presenting these reforms. Let me ask you, sounds like this is quite a lift to get done politically. I know that you weren't evaluating how hard this was to get over the finish line, but Can you shed any light on the politics of getting this in place?
1: Well, there's lots of interaction that Mike Miles had with his school board. And it was, I think, best described as initially a um, non-functioning school board. It was not working very well when they hired him in. And he spent a lot of time with them to try to convince them to do this. But it wasn't a slam dunk. Uh, He had to to get a um, split school board to agree to this.
0: And just one other thing to note here, this is Dallas. This is 160,000 kids, right? 200 and some odd schools. I mean, this is a big district. So this is not what we would think as some novelty set of reforms. Is that right? Yes.
1: Yeah.
2: I think the other element that's interesting to me, particularly being from Chicago, which went to a very decentralized school governance system, I think there was a history in Dallas where the district had, it was thought, did not treat many of the poorest neighborhoods, perhaps the neighborhoods with predominantly black children very well. And so there was a kind of decentralization of effective power. And what Mike Miles did was come in and really centralize everything. You know, you were, you were compensated, rewarded, kept in positions as a principal based upon this system of evaluation. And I think that was, you know, we often think of perhaps, you know, labor versus management or unions not liking certain reforms. But I think here it was also this sense of the decentralization advocates were really those who didn't trust the district. And so what Mike Miles went in and did was, I think, put in a system which, in the end, as we begin to talk about the second paper, which, you know, provided additional pay for people Um, working in the lowest achievement schools, I think not only treated those kids in those schools fairly, even went so far as to really prioritize their learning.
1: Now, you also, Nat, have to point out one thing. This is Texas, and Mike Miles spent a lot of time working with the school board and with the teachers, but there is no collective bargaining in Texas. And so it's a situation that gives him at least a fair shot at trying to change things that you don't have in Los Angeles.
0: Right. So you could have all those things and still have a tough tough road in Chicago, right Steve? I think that would probably be accurate. That's a fair statement. <laughs> All right. So look, you use the synthetic control comparison in this if someone wants to understand exactly how you got your estimates, they can read the paper. Again, it's up at NBER. But how big were the effects and what were the nature of them? Steve? So I I think
2: what it looks like is what we're able to do is we can look at achievement trends. I think we begin in 2005. And the reform was the principal part of this was implemented in 2013 and then the teacher part in 2015. And very briefly, what the synthetic control does is it selects a bunch of schools in the state actually... In the large districts that we considered as potential comparisons in order to match the achievement trends prior to the start of the reform and the reform kicked in in 2013 and for the first few years it doesn't look like what happened much happened in the aggregate because there was a lot of turnover of teachers in dallas and so you got a lot of very inexperienced teachers coming in which tends to dampen Achievement, you know, dampen effectiveness. When you're in your first year, it's hard to be very effective. And then after 2015, 2016, test scores uh, on average in Dallas begin to diverge from those in the comparison set of schools. And by 2019, I believe achievement in Dallas ISD has risen 0.2 standard deviations relative to the set of controls. Now, I don't know, you may, Ned, have much better experience than I have at explaining that in a way that's going to be, you know, accessible to the readers, but I can tell you that that's a very large effect when we compare it to other things that we've learned about schools. So, for example, in our study and other studies of the variation in teacher effectiveness, that we estimate a standard deviation in teacher quality moving from the median teacher to someone in the 80th percentile of the distribution to be only slightly more than half as large as the average achievement achievement increase in mathematics in Dallas, and roughly as large as the average achievement increase in reading, which was about half as large as in math. Um, If you take the Tennessee Star experiment about class size that an eight or nine student decrease in class size in kindergarten or first grade led to an effect which is somewhat similar in size to what Dallas achieved with a fairly budget neutral change and one that is likely to continue, would have been likely to continue to grow in size. Of course, we won't know because then COVID kicked in and there was no testing in 2020. So that's a real shame.
1: But let me give my own explanation of this. I think there are two explanations that are important, is that after four years of the of both systems being in effect, the Dallas district started to come close to an average uh, district in the whole state, and they have a much more disadvantaged population. So what you saw was instead of being the standard disadvantaged Central City school that's performing, where students are performing below the state significantly, they're coming up close to that. But another way of looking at this is that um, the 0.2 standard deviations that Steve talked about are somewhere between uh, two-thirds and three-quarters of a year extra schooling. It's like, like kids were all of a sudden after this time learning at a rate that brought them up Uh, two-thirds to three-quarters of a whole grade level. Um, So it made up for the deficits that these kids had historically been going finishing school
0: with. And I'll add one more, and you both tell me if I get this wrong, but I would say that if you were doing a sort of bespoke intervention in a couple of classrooms in a district, and you got 20% of a standard deviation change over a couple of years, you'd be pretty jazzed as an evaluator. And it's a wholly different job to get 160,000 student district to sort of show generalized improvements at that same scale. So it's not just that these are large changes. It's that a large group of students made these large changes. And that is what made me think, I got to have you guys on the podcast to explain how this measurement works. So- I'm interested in two quick questions before we get to this graded section. We saw uh, with Race to the Top and in those years, a lot of efforts on the evaluation side, and we didn't see effects like this in those places. Was Race to the Top just not aggressive enough? I mean, why would a series of evaluation reforms spurred across the nation peter out in the effects when put in relief to these Dallas changes. I would
1: label it leadership, that what Race to the Top did was offer a fairly small amount of money to a state that would radically change the way teachers were evaluated and treated. It didn't have individual districts involved in working with their school boards and teachers to develop a better system. It didn't do the kinds of things that were done in Dallas. And it didn't have, in general, the leadership. Everybody said, well, state of Tennessee will get a $500 million more, or whatever they got, um, for being a race to the top finalist. But it wasn't obvious at the local district level what that meant.
0: So that's interesting because it shows local control could go either way on this. From Steve's perspective, a little less local control with some clear leadership from the district all the way across all the schools can be beneficial, but local control at the district level for implementing those changes might be part of the secret of maintaining them at scale.
2: Well, I think it's a, it, it's a very hard problem Right. To to make federal policy that can really influence in a dramatic way how local schools you know operate when the nexus of power is at the superintendent level and at the schools. And even when the states were involved, I think it's also very difficult to, you know, if the local districts have are mainly interested in complying with the state in order to get the funding. That's going to be very different than when you have a local district whose leader is really, this is his reform and he believes that this is the way to really improve the schools. So I think, I think it sort of highlighted the challenges that the federal government faces and even states face in trying to improve the public schools beyond one of the things that I think has been so valuable that the federal government has done is in, is their leadership in, you know, in funding and helping to produce excellent research. And that's that's been valuable. That's a good role, I think, to go beyond that as, you know, and redistribution obviously can be an important role. But to go beyond that with trying to get certain types of policies in place, I think that the what appears to be the failure of race at the top is a good example of how difficult that is.
1: So the federal government also did One other thing that uh, was related to No Child Left Behind, it required that performance measures be available to the populations. Now, it didn't specify how you test students or present the data, but it certainly said you have to have assessments of student performance, make them public. You have to do that by disaggregated subgroups, by race and income. Uh, special ed, um, and it, it's hard to avoid uh, labeling that as the biggest element of No Child Left Behind.
2: Well, I agree. That's that's a great point.
0: All right. So in the middle of these podcasts, we do a section called Grade It. Are you game? Sure. Cool. Eric, I'll start with you. School's use of COVID relief funding.
1: F. Um, this is... One of the real problems today, we have huge learning losses because of the pandemic. The federal government put a large amount of money into schools and they could use it to try to alleviate the problems that were created by COVID. They did it largely by Air conditioning systems and uh, various physical things that had little to do with trying to recover the recover the learning loss that the COVID cohort suffered.
0: Fair enough, Steve. The state of education research, and by that I mean, is it interesting enough? Are we asking interesting <laughs> questions?
2: I'd say B. I think that there's a lot of really good research. I mean, I think there's strands of research where people are doing experiments on different interventions. And then there's other strands of research where, you know, people are using large administrative data sets and, you know, or even census or other government government surveys to answer bigger picture questions. I think the, it doesn't get an A because I think that In some cases, people are not rigorous enough in evaluating the work. And in other places, states are showing greater reluctance to make their information available for research. And I think that's a detriment to our learning more.
0: Rick, now I'm going to ask you to grade on a curve of GDP, education quality in the developing world.
1: (laughs) In the developing world it's quite remarkable how the schools cannot, in general, support a modern economy. So we worry about things like trying to improve the development, the economic development of sub-Saharan Africa, but their schools cannot support any modern economies. And so, in my opinion, you can build all the bridges you want in sub-Saharan Africa, and you won't get the long-term development that people are looking for. So it's uh, currently at the D range.
0: All right. I, I like that grade there at the end. And Steve, relative to the U.S., school reform in Europe?
2: I think relative to the U.S., school reform in Europe is a D. I think that that we've been pushed harder because in many cases, we have much more diverse and challenging populations of students to serve. And we've been pushed harder to try to understand and identify better ways of working. And then you get something like Dallas, which I think is extremely important. Um, I think in Europe, in some places, they've had much more success and higher achievement but I think in many ways haven't tackled the difficult challenges well as exist in England and France and in other places and are really letting, you know, substantial fractions of their populations fall, fall behind in ways that are going to be very harmful for them and for society going forward.
0: Rick, you've had 40 years to develop this answer, a nation at risk. (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
1: The answer is yes. Um, uh, I think that the future of the United States depends upon improving the quality of our schools. Um, Our schools really aren't up to international standards in terms of performance, and that we have to make improvements. This has been amplified by the COVID experience, which has Put our students for for this cohort back from where they were before covid and I think after covid um, and we have to deal with those or we're going to be less and less internationally competitive and we've rivet we've resisted the forces that would press us downward by our school quality by having a very good economic system that encourages growth. We have a system that historically has allowed uh, well-educated, smart people to immigrate into the U.S., and these factors have insulated us from the fact that our schools aren't quite up to standards.
0: All right, I want to get to the next study, so I'm going to have to force this to be the last one, but I'm going to exact a grade from both of you. The potential for AI to help catch children up from learning loss. Steve?
2: I think it's low. I think the potential for AI is there to help children cheat. But I think that, you know, children need to be nurtured by human beings for the most part.
1: Rick? Um, I also would say C or D, we don't know how to harness it right now. But AI, uh, as Steve says, doesn't substitute for a teacher. There's what we learned from COVID, where we tried lots of Attempts at remote learning and so forth is that you can order learning by in-class teaching to hybrid teaching that has some in-class and some technology involved to remote uh, learning that is entirely separated from in-person instruction, and this this ordering comes through pretty clearly when you look at what happened during COVID.
0: All right, I want to move to the second paper, Attracting and Retaining Highly Effective Educators in Hard-to-Staff Schools. Now, this is a different question from the first paper. The first paper was, what happens when we do comprehensive reform? This is a focused program on hard-to-staff schools. It also happens in Dallas around the same time, and it revolves around this ACE program, which is Accelerating Campus Excellence. Rick, can you take us through what is that program and how did it work? Sure. It's,
1: um, I should say, and you'll see, it's closely linked to the other system because when the Dallas schools had an evaluation system that allowed them to choose their most effective to their least effective teachers, the second thing that was done was to add an incentive monetary incentive to principals, good principals and to good teachers who would go into the lowest performing schools in the district. So what they did was to have a variable bonus system uh, based upon prior performance of teachers that gave $12,000 to the best teachers and Uh, $10,000 to the next category and $8,000 to a lower category if they would move to schools that had previously been at the very bottom of the performance scale. What they found was that good teachers reacted to incentives and they would move to these uh, schools. Now, let Steve tell you the answer of what happens once, once they do move.
0: Well, Steve, first, answer one other question. Are we sure that when teachers move placements, that they bring their value added with them? In other words, let's say you're in one school and you're doing quite well and then you move again. That would be great as long as we can be sure that your value added goes with you and delivers to the new students. How confident are we that that is constant across settings?
2: Well, I think it's, I I think we've learned some things that say it's not going to be exactly constant across settings, that teachers appear to benefit from being with good peer teachers. And I would expect a good, a good principal. Um, But there was a randomized controlled trial that I think Mathematica, um, some people from Mathematica ran that did show that if you took a high value added teacher and moved them to a very high poverty school, that that teacher was still
0: much more effective than the
2: typical teacher in the school.
0: And that's a big thing. The other thing about this, Rick, is that the ACE intervention in Dallas did work. I mean, we're talking about huge teacher turnover. Part of that was because everyone had to reapply, but how much did it stir the pot in terms of teachers retaining their positions in these schools?
1: Well, I think of the existing teachers in the schools, like three quarters or 80% of them did not return after the ACE program went in. They had to reapply, all the teachers had to reapply if they wanted to stay there. And then they were evaluated on their prior performance and interviews by management in the system. And the majority of them did not return, but were replaced by a substantially more effective teaching force of people who did apply.
0: So, Steve, what were the results of this? I mean, you looked at this over several years, right? Differential exposure. But give us the thumbnail. And was it at least as big as the 20% of a standard deviation in the previous study? So
2: the effect is, looks like about 50% of a standard deviation. And schools that were at the, so there were four elementary schools that were treated By the ACE intervention that we looked at, and there on average, they were way below the district average prior to the program. And they moved up very close or even maybe even exceeding the district average after just one year of the treatment and remain that high for multiple years. I think the other thing that is very important is that the first part of our analysis looks at how this intervention affected the kids' scores at the end of the year while they're in elementary school. The second part of the analysis looks at what happened to the kids' achievement in sixth grade. So they're no longer in the elementary school. They've now been out for at least a year. And the question is, did anything that, that happened in elementary school, you know, hang on? did it persist because and,
0: we've seen fade out in many of these studies right we have a good boost but the boost kind of fades away this is what you're asking about right
2: right and we're really interested in this question because you know because the the worry is that teachers are being paid in part on the basis of the achievement of the kids so there is this potential that they really focus on raising the achievement in ways that aren't going to be good pedagogy and and are going to lead to even you know, to more serious fade out, what we observe is kids who experienced the ACE intervention in elementary school in fifth grade only. So were there in fifth grade in the first year of the program, they got no boost in sixth grade. But those who experienced ACE for multiple years, uh, and we accounted for things like the fact that it's not random who leaves and things like that, They benefited substantially to the order of around 0.3, 0.35 standard deviations on the sixth grade test, which is not part of the evaluation of the elementary school teachers at all. So this is not anything which we would think of as gaming the system or short-term effects. This is really highly valued learning and acquisition of human capital on the part of these kids as a result of being exposed to a much stronger
0: teaching force. And so we have short-term outcomes and long-term outcomes. Rick, there's one other part to this story, and that is that the systems didn't stay consistently across the full time that you had data. Tell that part.
1: Okay. Well, let me tell you the the good part first. There was a second cohort of schools that was brought into the ACE program uh, after the first ones that Steve talked about. And we don't have as long of a time series on them, but it looks like they're following exactly the same pattern, that you bring in highly effective teachers and kids' performance grows. But then after some point of time, their performance has grown and there's pressures fiscal pressures on the district. And the district removed most of the incentives for the teachers in this first cohort of A students, uh, A schools. And what you saw was that large numbers of the effective teachers then left the first cohort of A schools and performance plummeted. And so what you see very directly is that incentives for teachers and principals work, but they, they don't work if you don't have incentives. And so what we see quite clearly, is that you have to be very purposeful in what you're doing and reward good teachers.
0: Now, let me ask a couple of questions to understand this. How expensive was this, right? I mean, this is bonuses for hard-to-staff schools, so it involves greater expenditure for some of the lowest-performing schools, but how do you contextualize the amount of the spend?
1: Um, I don't have that right in front of me, Steve. Can you have-
2: You know, I think it was a couple of million dollars. So if you think of raising a teacher's salary by around $10,000 on a base of 50 or 60, it's not an inexpensive proposition. You know, it's – but I think given the gain that you got, you know, it's certainly – you know, cost effective and much more effective than any, I think, any other way we know how to spend the money, that you spend this money to get better teachers in these schools. I think you have, the the program introduces a real political economy puzzle, which is if you take the most disadvantaged schools and then you move them up the distribution to the middle of what's happening in Dallas, then you almost have to remove the you know, we need to compensate these teachers more because the working conditions are more difficult. You know, the kids are often, we, we heard from an ace teacher about how we had a pantry full of food because the kids come often from very struggling families. But if you move this school up to that point, how can you not then redistribute that money to, to the new schools at the bottom of the distribution? But in the end, then. You, you know, then it becomes very difficult because those first schools that you moved up so far are then going to fall back. And so I think it's the second part of this problem is to figure out how, how we move forward in a way that we're willing to bear the cost with the very smart program of not paying, not giving just compensation for anyone to come teach in a difficult to staff school, but only someone who's been very effective. And then what do we do once they've, you know, once they've improved? how do we keep that going? So
1: I have to interject my standard comment at this point. And my standard comment is that you can have small increases in average class size and completely pay for this program. So we know we've been on this kick to keep reducing class size. And there's lots of debate of whether Uh, The effect is on average zero or slightly above zero uh, from reducing class size. If we just increased average class size uh, a little bit, we could pay for all these incentives.
0: Let me confront the political economy question a, a little differently. Steve, I certainly take your point. But Rick, if someone says, well, if you're going to make class sizes larger, let's give all the teachers a raise. Would such an approach engender the outcomes that you saw through this ACE program? Zero.
1: Um, Because there's the standard economic theorem that ineffective teachers like more money as much as effective teachers. And so if you, in fact, raise everybody's salaries, you'll have happier teachers, but you're not going to change either what they're doing or who stays or who leaves teaching because you're going to have uh, exactly the same situation you had before with, um, without changing anything.
2: Can I add, I think that there's, you know, a couple of important things. One is if you raise everybody's salary, you're not dealing with the fact that these are more difficult to staff schools for a reason. So if you really want to have some of the best teachers in these schools, you have to give people, you either have to assign them, which hasn't, isn't very common because typically teachers with seniority have a right to move where they'd like to, or you have to provide better compensation to compensate for the more difficult working conditions. And I think that I would say that on average, teachers are substantially underpaid. But to, as Rick points out, just to raise everyone's pay by 20% isn't going to get you anywhere. But to raise average pay and, as Dallas has done, make it a more risky job in which those who are effective are the ones who get the additional pay, that seems to be a much more promising um, way to go forward to improve situations for districts and states and the country as a whole. But I think it is important to recognize that if you really want to get some of the best teachers in the hardest-to-staff schools, you have to be explicit about providing additional compensation.
0: Now, with the TEI and PEI evaluation changes, I don't think you run into this sort of zero-sum problem, right? I mean, if teachers who are not getting the benefits of the compensation that are associated with higher evaluation scores, they might go to another district and you're kind of okay with that because you haven't lost a higher percentage of your relatively low-performing teachers. But I worry about the zero-sum nature of the ACE program. To what degree are the teachers, the higher-performing teachers, leaving other schools bereft when they go to the lower-performing schools? How do you suggest I think about that trade-off?
1: I think you think about that trade-off in terms of The TEI PEI program in general. One of the things um, that we saw from the TEI program was that there was an increased departure from the district of lower performing teachers. So that lower performing teachers left more frequently, replaced by just an average teacher, and the whole quality of the district goes up. And that's if the stock of teachers remained exactly the same it would be zero sum for the most part there's you know they might teach a little bit better and nicer in the way they're organized but in general good teachers would go from better performing schools to lower performing schools but if in fact you can also use the whole evaluation system to encourage better performing teachers you're uh, in a much better place.
2: I think that that's right. I think that there's two issues. One is that it's true that if a really good teacher leaves, uh, say, you know, a school toward the higher end of the income distribution in Dallas ISD, it's an immediate loss in that school. But I think they're going to, you know, as years go on, they're going to be able to attract very good teachers to those schools, particularly when you have the TEI and PEI in place the challenge was to attract the very good teachers to the really high poverty disadvantaged schools. And you fix that in a sense with this, you know, with this kind of ACE program. I think that the zero sum game is a bit of a challenge for Dallas ISD going forward, because even if you have the less effective teachers leaving over time to get yourself to really have a substantial improvement in the distribution of teacher effectiveness, they will hopefully be pushed to figure out a way to shift the compensation system upward to reflect the fact that the schools have done much better i mean what this paper says on average achievement in dallas is 0.2 standard deviations better i think that's that's suggesting that the quality of instruction is substantially better and that'll be hard to maintain with these fixed, you know, if you have a fixed distributions of the share of teachers who are in the low categories and the high categories, and on average the district is doing much better, there's a disconnect there, but that's a good problem to have.
0: There is a little bit of a disconnect to say, well, we should pay teachers more when they perform better, but if the whole crew performs better, we want that for free. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit ironic. Steve, Rick, these are great papers. Very interesting work and coming in a one-two punch to NBER in March. We will have links to some of that work in the show notes. And thanks for coming on the report card to talk about it.
1: Thanks for having us, Nat.
0: Thanks, Nat. It was it was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. A special thanks to our guests, Rick Hanushek and Steve Rivkin. We'll include links to the effects of comprehensive educator evaluation and pay reform on achievement and attracting and retaining highly effective educators in hard to staff schools, as well as some of Rick and Steve's other work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a moment to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We want your comments, questions, or topic suggestions, so send them to us at ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.